How can we channel the power of inquiry to make better decisions and move forward in an era of constant change and transition? This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Hal Gregerson to go deeper on that very subject. Hal is a senior lecturer in leadership and innovation at the MIT Sloan School of Management, a recipient of the Thinkers 50 number one leadership award and the author of 10 books. To address the challenges leaders are facing and explain why questions are the answer, without further ado, let's speak to the man himself, Hal Gregerson. So I'm delighted today to be joined on the IMI Talking Leadership podcast by Hal Gregerson. Hal, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you, Dave. How are you doing? Fantastic. Um, can't complain. I want to just start today, if you don't mind, by just kind of getting to the heart of your philosophy, which is all about questions. And my first question for you is, was there a moment in which you realized the power of inquiry in life? And I suppose, was there an aha moment or was it more of a gradual discovery for you? Uh, I can think of uh, two or three moments. The first was when I was an adult, reflecting back on growing up in a home where I had amazing parents in so many ways. They worked hard, both of them, but my father was, um, he had a pretty severe control streak in today's world that would be called emotionally abusive and sometimes physically. and, And so... My siblings and I, we were all trying to figure out ways to protect ourselves from that kind of dangerous threat in our world at moments. And I didn't realize until after growing up that as a teenager, especially, I had used questions to deflect problems. I literally, I might, I would figure out the questions to be asking to divert my father from the dilemma we were in the middle of so that somebody's not going to get in a difficult compromising situation here. And so that was an after the growing up kind of response, but I now realize in retrospect that growing up in that sometimes tough context, I was actually learning how to sharpen the questions that were being asked. So that was like the first moment. And the second moment was in graduate school. I was totally afraid of a teacher named Bonner Ritchie. And um, he was incredibly, and is incredibly smart, pushed the students hard, expected them to think on their own. And everybody pretty much was afraid of his class. And I'll never forget halfway through that class, two o'clock in the morning, pushing back from a typewriter. Yes, we use typewriters in those days. Pushing back from the typewriter, thinking to myself, I do not care what Bonner Ritchie thinks. I have learned something really important here and his perspective doesn't matter. And that was that moment. And that's exactly what Bonner was trying to teach us was How can you think more independently and ask the questions that need to be asked, even if they're threatening or challenging to the status quo? And so it was a combination of a bit of negative context early on in life, but a phenomenal graduate school teacher during my master's program who took the art of inquiry to the absolute next level. That's fascinating. Yeah. And especially I can, I can definitely relate on the subject of having the, the right types of teachers early in life can really shape, you know, so many decisions downstream. It's, it's really, really interesting. And uh, that's a fascinating story. Just to can I share to, something really quick on that? Yes, Dave? 
Of course. So, so the quick thought is, so often in workshops I do around asking better questions, I will literally ask people to think through the following. What were other, what were authority figures responses to your questions that challenged the status quo? How did authority figures at home respond? In K through 12 schooling respond? If it had technical or university training, what about that? How did they respond? Your first professional full-time-ish kind of job how did authority figures respond? Your first supervisory role if you became manager? And, and currently, how do authority figures respond? And what we find is exactly what you said. You know, it's all over the map. Some people had great parents who were supportive. Others had great teachers who were supportive. Others had a fantastic first new boss when they got out of their university education. And conversely, other, you know, everybody had sometimes somebody who was shutting it down. And so I just find it really useful to take a step back sometimes and think about our own relationship with questioning, especially fearless questions over the course of our life, because it really influences how we respond and inquire and engage with the world here and now. Just moving on to the present now, Haaland, um, the reality of the pandemic, it's certainly brought its fair share of challenges, to say the least, for leaders. Yes. But what positive impacts do you think it has had for leaders and organizations? Has it offered any more clarity on things or have there been any other particular positive impacts, do you think? I think uh, across every sector, business, government, not-for-profit, etc., it has certainly challenged some previously held, closely held assumptions for a lot of leaders that we can't get things done virtually. And, you know, case in point, even at universities like MIT, a lot of faculty probably felt like there's certain things we just can't do online that, you know, we have to be there in person. There may still be a few things like that, but the reality is we, like you and others, have literally leapfrogged into the future on this one. And, you know, we become far more adept at engaging and connecting with people, a more, in some ways a more diverse set of people because we are able to bring them into our world from all over the world. What a beautiful thing. You know, to me, that's one powerful element of this that now we've got to figure out, okay, how do we take the best of that and bring it back? So, so to me, that's one thing. Um, you know, another thing at a very individual level is just, I'll be honest, the last 20 years, I've lived in beautiful places, London, outside of Paris, Abu Dhabi in the Emirates, um, now in Boston. <clears throat> Until the pandemic, it really didn't matter where I lived because I was always on an airplane. And the last year and a half, it's like I've fallen in love with where we live. We live on the North Shore of the Atlantic here near Boston. And it's just beautiful and engaging and reflective. And it's just a creative space. But I never knew that, you know. And, yeah. and so, wow, that's also really cool. Do I even want to get back on a plane again? That's it. And actually, um, in Ireland as well, there's been a huge upsurge in people kind of just for lack of a better way of saying it, uh, waking up and smelling the roses, if you want to put it that way. Just kind no, of exactly. Yeah. Going back yeah. to the local spaces that we have here, which are numerous and beautiful. So yeah, it's, it's a great thing to see really, you know. It, it, it really is. And so that's where, 
in these questions of, you know, what have leaders learned? There are positive things we've learned and gained. There are negative things, obviously. You know, the, the opportunity to just be physically present with somebody, be it a coworker. One of my close writing and, and friend colleagues that doesn't live too far from here, but yesterday was the first time I gave him a friendly hug in over a year because we've just not felt comfortable with the context. And um, there's a richness in being able to reconnect that, that's truly powerful. But, um, you know, we're, we're sorting through it. Just a kind of follow-up question, actually, Hal, on, um, on that related to leaders. Do you think that this has in some ways exposed some of the frailties in maybe leaders' models for transition and change? And in general, how do you think leaders have adapted to the crisis that is the pandemic? Well, there are better leaders and there are worse leaders, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my lifetime, at least professionally, has spent trying to study the best of the best leaders in states of transition. And early on, it was companies. I lived in Finland for four years, three years. It was companies in Finland and beyond trying to go global when they had started out just domestic local and like an Irish company going global. And that whole process is a massive transition that demands certain skills and capabilities. Um, then I studied literally change and transitions. How do you transform a company? Then it was innovation with Clayton Christensen and other colleagues. And in all of those settings, you know, globalization, change and transformation, innovation, and now digital transformation, they are all transitions from here to there. And, and I'm giving that context, which is if we come to the present now, we've spent a year in the foreign country of coronavirus. And it's literally as if we've all moved to a foreign country. And if we think of it that way, we will be much better off going forward into whatever that new country is that we're creating. Yeah. And so to me, I like to think of what's happening here is repatriation. We're going home to a home that isn't, once, isn't what it once was. And that's the first step for me in terms of this model of transition is, are we, are we remembering what's happened here? Dave, if I knew, knew you in the beginning of 2020, if I knew you well then, and I now am back more engaged with whatever we're doing with our work together a year later, I can act as if you were the same person you were a year ago. And I can just say, okay, let's get to work here it's at IMI. Let's just move things forward. What needs to be done? Let's get to work. We're going to make this happen. We're going to create a hybrid workplace. And what's first on that list of things to do? I think that is the common, instinctual, especially managerial response to these kinds of settings. But when we are making major transitions, and this is major, Going back to whatever this hybrid workplace is going to be is a major transition. I think it's important for us to remember, whoa, wait a minute. The world has changed, you know, and if you've gone back physically to your workspace and you haven't been there before, you will see it. That world has changed. The physical world has changed. 
And that's the easy thing to see in this process. What's harder to see, given our predisposition to just do things to move things forward, what's harder to see is the fact that you're different, Dave. I'm different, Hal. And because of that, we are going to be interacting differently. And are we paying attention to how we've changed? Are we even aware of how we've changed individually before we start hell-bent down this road of whatever this thing is going to be, this hybrid workplace future? Yeah, and I think that's a great point. And I think to almost to be aware of the change, you have to be exposed to other people sort of acting as a mirror to your you know, maybe way of acting your relationships that you have and things like that. I think that's going to be the really interesting step. It's looking like September here for our return to the office. So we'll, we wait with bated breath until then. But I, as well as you, we're all in this process now. Of, of, if we think about it, this is a cross-cultural transition. And, and we are asking all sorts of questions about who we are, we're asking questions about what roles are we playing and what will roles will we be willing to play? Am I willing to go back physically? Is my health in a comp? You know, there's all these questions about what roles am I going to play at work and outside of work and how are they going to be shifting? And then I've got to learn all this new stuff. Like if I go back, how am I going to actually engage in a team meeting when three of us are physically present and two are on screens? What's that really going to be like? How are we going to create fairness and equality in that situation? How are we going to approach that? How's that going to impact my roles and how I think of myself? And underneath of all that is like, how do I feel about all this? Exactly. And that's what we talked about last week. But it's like we talked about it on that podcast on, on the on the webinar last week, but. Frankly, in the last seven days since we had that, I have had more conversations than I've had in 12 months about exactly what we're talking about. Discussions with my wife about what are we going to do about this and what about that travel and what about me going back and when should we go back and neighbors like, well, we have some people who are anti-vaccine and they're not going to you know, get the vaccine and how are we going to deal with that? And our kids are best friends and how do we respond to that? And it's just been conversation after conversation. And I don't have any golden answer to any of those questions, except for the following. I'm super grateful in our, in our home with my wife and with friends that I'm interacting with that we can talk about it. We can exchange views, not just intellectually, but I'm feeling worried here. Mm. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling afraid. I'm feeling excited. And it's those conversations that I'm finding are actually most helpful in maneuvering through those changes we're in the middle of. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good way to put it. And yeah, indeed, you did touch on the emotional toll. Uh, that the last year or more now has taken. Is there any kind of model or framework that you would recommend to deal with that for leaders? Uh, Any kind of tips in general over the next few months? (laughs) My, My blunt response is remember, remember, remember that human beings have emotion and emotions impact action. 
And action impacts results. And so if you want to be results oriented during this transition, you darn well better pay attention to the emotions that are going on underneath all of this. If I'm wrestling with the fact that I just lost my best friend or my partner or my grandparent three weeks before we're coming back, and you're not even aware of that, and you don't even think that plays into the equation of whether I'm going to be productive today or not, you're in for a surprise. (laughs) And so my first response on that is just, it's an awareness of what Ellen Langer uses in a question, what else is going on here? In any conversation, any setting, there was always something else going on. And emotions for too many people are often that something else that we get to later. So that's the starting point for me, Dave. It was like just an awareness, a reminder, okay, roles are changing around here. The tasks and jobs and capabilities we're doing are changing. Now I get that. That's kind of classic managerial stuff. But the emotion part is not. And I'm at MIT where we don't talk a lot about emotions. We are a Mm -hmm. science, technology, engineering, and math space primarily, but we're learning, you know, it matters. And so once I've got that awareness, then it becomes, okay, how do I feel about this hybrid, hybrid workplace? How do I feel? Manager me. And then it's, if you're on my team, Dave, it's like, how do you feel about it? It's not just what are you going to do and how are we going to approach this, you know, mixed people in person out team dynamic, but it's like, how do you feel about all that? And do you want to talk about it? And those are the diagnostic questions. It's like, you know, how do you feel about it? And if they are willing to say this, I feel about it, do you want to talk about it? And if I can't get that conversation going about, do I want to talk about how I feel? It is the most substantive indicator that we're, whatever we're trying to do might make progress, but it will go backwards more than forwards. One thing, how that you mentioned earlier that I really wanted to pick up on is the mm-hmm. hybrid work in general, I suppose, and how this is an undiscovered country, let's say, for, for businesses, um, for many businesses. Obviously, there are some who have, have successfully implemented hybrid work in the past. But how do you think it's going to pan out. Do you see it lasting the test of time? Or do you think like we've seen with certain organizations already, there will be a bit of a, let's say a movement to get people back into the office in person? I had a, I've got a draft of an article that I worked on a year or two ago called leadership in an age of outrage. And, you know, I know that there are many companies in different parts of the world that are basically saying, you're coming back whether you like it or not. And um, they're getting outrage from a lot of people. Now, I can see the business case they're making and trying to make by that sort of unilateral, everyone's coming back. But if we're gonna do that, people still need to feel a sense of fair process. I'm heard. I've had a sense to voice my perspective and I have a choice in the matter. If we shut down voice and choice in this hybrid workplace transition, we may get temporarily temporary movement, 
but it won't last. People will move on, will lose valuable human capital resources, perspective, insights, experience that otherwise we wouldn't. Um, and you know the, the labor markets are a lot more liquid right now than they've been because there's a lot of opportunity where people are starting to get opening. So, so that to me is like the starting point is just like, have I created the space to have the conversation where people can have voice and choice about whatever the issue is? And we got a lot, you know, you, we both know, Dave, there are a laundry list of issues here. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we, we could go into the specifics on those, but for me, it's more generic just around, have I created in Amy Edmondson's psychological safety language a safe enough space for people to have voice and choice about the issues that matter to them. Yeah, well said. And th there's been a lot of interesting pieces on this recently. Um, speaking about, you know, even things like hybrid capabilities, you know, people's preferring to work from home for personal reasons to maybe having a bit more tech literacy in terms of being able to operate from home and things like that and how that could shift power dynamics in offices and, you know, the visibility factor, as you say, the, the laundry list goes on and on. But um, uh, Hal, I wanted to actually ask you now about travel. Um, so you, you've, as you mentioned, uh, you've traveled around the world, lived in many different places, uh, learned Finnish, been traveling the, the Rocky Mountains, many other places. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious uh, how much that experience of travel has, has shaped your mindset and approach in life and, and in work as well. Well, there's a tourism travel and traveler travel. And tourism travel is, you know, it's, it's point and shoot kind of photography. It's like, I'm just like taking pictures of something interesting as I move through this space. And, you know, as a photographer, I don't find that kind of point and shoot taking a picture useful at all. And when I'm traveling, I use photography as the metaphoric image for the experience. And that is, instead of taking a photograph, make one. And to make one means I've got to start being, I've got to pay careful attention to the world I'm in. I've got to be willing to commit to a composition in a scene. I've got to be willing to be literally vulnerable and exposed because of my commitment to you, to your little store, to your car, to your bike, to your place on the street. And when I do that, there's a decent probability I'll connect, which means, you know, it's not just snap and run, but it's snap and talk. It's, it's, it's a whole different way of engaging with the world. And so to me, the travel piece is, you know, to what degree have I connected with that local world in a way that changed my world? So that's the travel question. And then there's the travel versus living and living in a space. If you don't live in some expatriate ghetto and just live the life you had before you went, you're going to engage deeply with a whole different way of seeing and living and working and operating in the world. And that's where our, we've lived in five different countries. I've lived in 47 different homes in my life, 21 different cities. And my deepest friends are from those very different places. We continue to hold on to those relationships and our friendships because we were helping each other. We cared about each other. And that made travel completely different. 
And what's really interesting about the hybrid workplace related to the travel is that some people want to travel, others don't. Some people want to stay. And the trick now is figuring out how do we compose that space that can honor contradictory assumptions. It's going to be really interesting uh, to see. And I'm sure, uh, like yourself, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to getting back on a plane at some point. Uh, <laughs> traveling somewhere. We'll see. We'll see when that is. But um, actually, um, on, on the photography um, question, I, I'm eager to ask you as well, just what has photography taught you about uh, the world and yourself? Uh, I, I fell in love with photography in high school and I actually set up a, I was a wedding and portrait photographer, paid my way through college um, for the most part. But as I look back on it, photography, photography back then was a mechanism by which I could be creative and I loved to connect with people to somehow capture the essence, some essence of who they were, their personality in that photograph that I took. Um, so there was that outward connecting part that was, a, and, and creativity part that was there, but it was also a protective mechanism. I was, I, I, I always felt inadequate. I always felt like I never measured up. I always felt like I didn't fit in, even though that was not really a legitimate thing to even say in retrospect, but that's how I felt. Not always, but often did. And so the camera for me, I'd put the camera up and people, you know, they wouldn't have to talk to me. <laughs> yeah. It was it was a protective window on the world. Like, I can just hide behind this. And it wasn't until later in life, the last decade or so, when I re-engaged more fully with photography, that a, a photographer I first worked with, Sam Abel, who was at National Geographic for 30 years, he just, he was tough, man. The first set of photos he looked at of mine, he said, you know, a few of these are really good, Hal, but I don't know who you are. And that's that taking a position, taking a stand, getting away, not hiding behind the camera. And I'm still honestly trying to figure that out photographically, but I'm closer than I was 30, 40 years ago. That's for sure. And, and so for me now, like this morning, I'm down taking photographs after I do some exercise. We have 40 steps beach with 40 steps and I run those stairs and it's a beach here near the Atlantic. But then when I'm done, I often, I bring my camera with and I go down and just explore that world. Mm. Well, I have questions in my head. You know, one of them is around the whole intersection of AI and inquiry. How does that all work out? So now when I'm taking photographs, I'm actually wrestling with questions behind it. And photography becomes a means by which I make sense of my toughest leadership and, and thinking questions that are there. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's something that I'm very keen to get into at some point when I can get my hands on a decent camera. But uh, for now, the... Ah, yeah. You don't need a decent camera. No, I mean, I my <laughs> iPhone... Um, I do a thing called 60 second solitude, which are videos oh. only and they're short 60 second videos. You can make beautiful video and photographs with most, most, you know, uh, camera phone, uh, phone cameras today. And the key thing is just being willing to engage with the world, Dave. It's like, yeah. okay, 
what stops me in my tracks? That's my first question as a photographer. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, now, how can I compose this that it looks beautiful to me and then wait for something even more interesting to come into that composition, to walk into the frame of the camera? If I do that, it's going to be about 20 minutes of a commitment. But that 20-minute commitment, 75% of the time, will create a really good photograph. Something valuable because we were committed to the scene. The scene grabbed us. We grabbed it. We stayed with it. We held with it. I can do that with my iPhone or my Samsung phone yeah. or whatever phone I've got. But it's just taking those moments to stop. And, and again, I can step back from that photo photography metaphor to leadership, whether it's Mary Barr at GM, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, Bezos at Amazon um, Nick Baton at ASOS there in, in, in England. It's like those folks, they are stopped by surprising things. They stay, they watch, they listen, they talk, they engage, they're uncomfortable, they're reflective, they ask, they get asked. And at the end of that, they get new ideas. They see the world differently and they move it forward. And isn't that what we're doing here as leaders? That's what hybrid workplace is all about. I'm being stopped by a scene where it's obvious that someone on that screen is really uncomfortable with the dynamics of what's going on because she's the only one of six and the other five are here. And I can sense that because I'm, I'm stopped by it. And then it's like, okay, team, time out. You know, what's going on here? And uh, just to finish up, I just wanted to ask you about your 424 project. I wonder if you could explain that and its significance to our listeners and then why it's so important to ask better questions. 424 is the following logic, is that number one, if we're, ask, if we're ever stuck at worker in life, we're asking the wrong question. That's why we're stuck. And so to get out of that stuckedness could be a relationship, could be a work challenge. To get out of that stuckedness, we have to ask different questions. But it's like, how do we do that? We're stuck. I'm stuck. At that point, it's like I discovered 20 years ago a simple process that takes two to four minutes. The average adult attention span is a little over three minutes. So I, I chose four minutes as the anchor point. Imagine asking nothing but questions about your issue, either alone or with other people. Ask nothing but questions about that issue for four minutes. If you or I do that, even if we do it alone, and we don't answer any of those questions, we don't try to explain in our head why we're asking those questions, at the end of that four minutes, 85% of the time, we will, we will feel better about the challenge. We will reframe the issue and we'll have at least one new idea to move it forward. So imagine taking that kind of four minute break every day, 365 days, it actually adds up to 24 hours. So we're gifting ourselves four minutes a day to make progress on some challenge that matters to us over the course of the day, and that's the year. So the logic here is, instead of being all answers in our everyday work, step back, ask more questions, 
if needs be, use that question burst process. Just literally write down one to four minutes of nothing but questions, and it will help a person move forward. Now, here's the cool thing is that if I do that, I will start asking better questions everywhere. I'll be, I'll be contributing more to that new hybrid workplace because I'll be asking better questions to move us forward in a place we're stuck now. And, you know, so I'll be moving that stuff forward. Um, and that's, and because of that, I'm an adult. We're a blended family. We're a family of 26 people, including my wife and myself, seven kids, six partner spouses, 11 grandkids, and this is the complex bunch. And um, my hope is that if I can become a better questioner by working at it every day, my grandkids will be able to learn some of that from me. And that's the gift of the 424 Project. We're giving that increased questioning ability to find and solve the problems that matter to us better to ourselves to gift that to the next generation. I love that idea, especially considering, you know, the, I suppose the the issues that maybe younger people have in terms of asking questions, as you've said yourself, in terms of, you know, going to school and then there's kind of, there's almost a, you know, disincentive to ask questions for fear of being wrong. So that idea of paying it forward and, you know, kind of setting the next generation up for the challenges that they'll face is a, is a fascinating thing. Um, Hal Gregerson, I want to thank you so much. That concludes my question burst for you today. Um, but I want to thank you so much for your time and uh, much appreciated. Thank you, Dave. Wish you well. I want to extend a sincere thanks to Hal Gregerson again for his time and insights today. And to learn more about Hal's work, you can find his keynote speeches on YouTube or visit his website at www.halgregerson.com. Until next time, thank you very much for listening to the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast.